Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome back to God's Planning. This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic uh, from the House of Studies in D.C. Today, I'm joined by uh, Father Bonaventure Chapman, also here in D.C. Father Bonaventure, why don't you say hello to everyone? Hello, everyone. I have to stop doing that because every time I say Father Bonaventure or Father Patrick or whoever say hello, I always get a kind of stupid reply back. So I have to come up with a better introduction, um, maybe next time. But I hope you're today, smart enough to come up with one. <laughs> wow, thanks. That's very kind. Um, today is our uh, our third installment of our new newer series, Guest Explaining, where uh, every month, the first Monday of every month, we are inviting a non-Dominican guest, for those who are getting a little tired of hearing us, to talk about something that they are sort of experts in in their field, kind of round out the, um, the, the sort of topic and schedule list. So we're super excited and really uh, privileged today to have to have with us Zena Hitz, the author of her new book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Uh, Father Bonaventure is holding it up there so you can get a look at it if you're, if you're watching on YouTube. Um, it's front to me because the camera fixes it. So <laughs> Never mind. It's great. It's perfect. Um, just, so just Zena, being stupid over here. Yeah, perfect. Zena, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be here, Father. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's exciting because... Um, for a whole host of reasons because of what we're going to talk about. But Zena also has um, some Dominican connections. She studied at the House of Studies for a little bit of time. Uh, so knows some of the friars of the province. Uh, so it's great to kind of get you get you connected into one of our little apostolates here and, and have you on board. No, I'm thrilled. Uh, your community, the one in DC has meant a lot to me over the years. And uh, actually it was a big part of the journey I described in the book, although I had to keep it in, Landed up on the cutting room floor, but not in the cutting floor of my heart. So I'm very grateful to be here. So. Yeah, that's great. So um, I guess just, you know, our listeners probably know a little bit about myself and Father Bonaventure, but just to get everybody up to speed on on you, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, of course, in your book, that's that's kind of part of the book, especially the the beginning part, but just get up, get us caught up on who you are. And, and then we'll talk about the book in, the, in a second, but just, yeah, fill us in if you don't mind. So I um, grew up in a uh, secular bookworm family on the West Coast um, and went to uh, a liberal arts college, namely St. John's Annapolis, the secular grade book school, um, and had a transformative experience there, became a uh, academic in classical philosophy uh, and became disillusioned with uh, academic life. Um, uh, around that same time, I converted, came into the church, and uh, one of the things the book describes is um, what happened when my my secular, ambitious, intellectual life met um, the faith that I received through the church, uh, and I ended up leaving the profession for a time and living in a religious community called Madonna House. Then I left the community and returned to St. John's in Annapolis, which is where I teach now. Got it. Yeah. So not too far from us. And actually one of our, one of the friars here, I, I think he was, well, he went to St. John's, but I don't think he was there at the same time you were there. So missed each other, but Father Ephraim Reese um, is a St. John's alum. I don't know if you know him at all. 
I do. There's actually a, a, a channel that runs from St. John's to the Dominican House of Studies, of sure. which he is only the latest uh, instance. Uh, so there's there's many connections. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I, and I was uh, I was taught by Professor Anton Barbake over at CUA. So he's a dear a dear friend and wonderful Hegel professor and taught Kierkegaard as well. Um, so he's he's fantastic from St. John's. Uh, no, of course. Yes. Uh, no, I, I'm always proud to to hear about how well we've populated the the world. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and um, we are, you know, in certain ways like a cult, but uh, you know, it's it's a good cult. Some and, cults are good. Yeah, exactly. It brings good <laughs> things to the world. Yeah, uh, a particular spirit, particular intellectual spirit that I think the world needs. So. That's right. That's excellent. So we're one of the great things uh, I, or I guess that we're privileged with is having you on the podcast now because you've you just released this this new book. Uh, it was published uh, just last year, but I think came out. What remind me when did it come out? I know in twenty twenty, um, but what part of the year? It came out in May. In May. Okay, so not even a year ago. Um, so it's great to have you talking about the book. So and it's such a new book. So um, one of the things that we wanted, at least by way of of starting out our conversation is just to give us, if you wouldn't mind, kind of intro introduce the book to us, kind of the thought behind it. Um, why, why write a book that, and when I was reading it, um, uh, it, I realized very quickly that this was not something that was going to convince me because I was already convinced of the goodness of the intellectual life, but I think so much of the world isn't. So, you know, what, besides kind of introducing the world to that, why, why write the book then, and why write it in this way and that sort of thing? Well, there are a couple of things I had in mind. The, the main motivation was uh, the intellectual life as I have, was brought up in it and as I teach it and practice it now is something that is endangered in the world. So our, um, our higher education system is in about a thousand crises and the liberal arts, um, not just uh, philosophy and literature and history, but also uh, theoretical math and science, they're all threatened um, by the current circumstances. This is not an original idea to me. Everyone I think knows this, but what I was frustrated with was defenses of the humanities, defenses of the liberal arts in terms of their utility. You know, they're going to get you a great job in Silicon Valley. They're going to give you the critical thinking skills you need to build a just society here and now. And I, that felt wrong to me. It felt patronizing to people we were writing for since it wasn't the reason why most of us got into this business. So I wanted to write something that was honest and authentic about why I thought intellectual life really mattered. And I wanted to do so in a way, one of the peculiarities of the book is that it's, it's not systematic. Uh, it doesn't move from first principles. I make it clear uh, that I'm Catholic and that my perspective is ineluctably Catholic. On the other hand, I do think that the value of the intellectual life is something which can be shared by a wide variety of people, religious, not religious, people from different religions. It's a, it's a human good, it's a natural good. And I wanted to bring that out um, also. So it, it, um, for that reason, it's a very essayistic book. It combines different uh, genres. There's a little bit of memoir, uh, my own story. There's uh, stories and examples of intellectual lives that seem to me illuminating or interesting 
and a, a very wide variety of circumstances that's deliberate so that people can connect with one or another of these examples. Then some uh, essay, so, some encounter between myself and some literary works, including uh, Augustine's Confessions, and then some uh, some polemics uh, <laughs> about the current state of higher education and uh, what I think um, needs, what I think the the system ought to think about doing as it as it handles the crisis that it's in the midst of. Zena, thank you for that and. Uh... What I love about this book is its discussion of the robustness and the uselessness, in a way, of the intellectual life. But, you know, having taught business ethics for a bit, I can imagine my students, of course, and they did say these sort of things. Oh, well, if the intellectual life is is not useful for me, it, I could see why it might be useful for you as an individual kind of special elite, cognitive elite or something. But what about what about me? I guess I could create a space for it for you, but it's not for me. And your book talks about how, of course, that it's for attainable, aimed for everyone, a very anti-elitist, you could say egalitarian perspective. So could you mention quick, though, perhaps our listeners don't, the intellectual life, I think people think that's like, oh, that's for professors or something. But your claim, of course, is that the intellectual life is is for humans. So if you're a human being, you should have the intellectual life. So what what does the intellectual life boil down to you when you talk to a business ethics person or, or if you talk to a business person or someone in the street, what would you say, well, why is intellectual life good for them? What is it? Well, we, we, all of us, uh, thank you for bringing that up because that is crucial, I think, to the book to argue that it is for everyone. It's not something that's restricted to academics. It's not something that's restricted to professionals or to elites. It's a human activity. It's an exercise of our capacities to think, reflect, try to understand, to contemplate. These are all things that basically everyone does in one way or another. And uh, reading and studying and um, investigating nature or doing mathematics, these are all ways in which uh, we can exercise, we can be human beings, we can exercise these capacities. So I, um, I would tell any business, any person who studied anything, business or anything else, that this is a, this ought to be a part of their life. Mm -hmm. And moreover, it's crucial, especially for someone in the business world, because they're operating in a realm of utility. They're operating in a, in a realm of uh, metrics and money-making and uh, that's all important. What will we do without business? Um, but it's not enough to make you a full human being and you need to have a part of your life where uh, you are what you are regardless of how much money you're making, how much yield you're producing, how, uh, how your stockholders feel, um, something that matters for you. Uh, and so that's, that's in a way the key nugget of what I think intellectual life is. I think that that idea really overlaps and that theme that you bring about, bring out in the book really overlaps with, um, with a sort of Dominican ideal of what the person is. And I think, you know, sometimes in the same way that the intellectual life at large can kind of receive those caricatures or criticisms that, that Father Bonaventure and you just both brought out, um, so too with Dominicans that we become sort of anti-practical, hyper heady, you know, which those criticisms 
you know, Correct. I live with a bunch of Dominicans, you know, you know, a bunch of Dominicans, those things are true, but it's not for, you know, that the pursuit of, of these intellectual goods doesn't exist um, just to become a speculative kind of thing without any kind of application. It's just the opposite. I mean, the, the genius of St. Dominic is that, um, that, that this sort of unity of the hylomorphic creature that we are body and soul. And, and that as, you know, as you come to know better, you are able to to love better. And in that sort of fulfillment of the Imago Dei, you become um, more truly human. And I think that's something that, that the book brings out, that this is a human, um, a human reality, not just uh, a, a sort of um, argument for something to do. It's not just a hobby, but there's, there's something more fundamental to sort of diving into truths and into... Um, just study and, and having these things. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's something that I picked up that it's, it's more fundamental than simply just to have a full bookshelf and to know things about things. No, I, one of the running themes of the book, which I think was heavily influenced by my experience with the Dominicans is the theme of uh, having the right, having an intellectual life that's in the right order Mm. A lot of what I reflect on, because one can idealize the intellectual life and one can find examples of intellectuals who did, who seem heroic and wonderful and accomplished, and we can aspire to be like them. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can also see that it, there's vices connected with it. There's, you know, the thing you're talking about, being too abstracted, uh, being proud, being hyper-competitive. Um, and, uh, that was in a way what I was trying to work out, um, for a good chunk of my life <laughs> and then also trying to express in the book. Uh, so I think of a Dominican friar as being someone whose intellectual life is actually subordinate to their priesthood. So they, they, uh, you know, the, the intellectual life takes place in between the liturgy, which is a, a different form of contemplation, uh, might be intellectual in its ultimate analysis, but it's not. Um, it you know it's not constituted by reading and studying. It's a form of prayer um, and pastoral service at the other end. You know, hearing confessions and listening to people mm. and so on. And it's in between where all the thinking takes place. So. One of the things I've tried to work out is, well, what does that look like for a person who's not ordained, for a person who's not a religious? Um, and the, the most general way I could put it, the most universal way I could put it would be to say, it has to be ordained to a, a true form of happiness, to a form of leisure, uh, to a form of contemplation, to a form of enjoyment uh, of some substantive human good. And I explore all the various things that I think that might mean for a variety of people in, in the book. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's um, what is so uh, I guess universally attractive about what you present in the book because it's so universally human uh, and, and these sorts of things. So um, we are uh, you know, we'll, we're coming up to our halfway point. So we're going to take a break right now. But when we return at the other at the other end of the episode, uh, we're going to talk about some of these things that that Zena identifies as leading to leisure and happiness and contemplation and enjoyment, um, kind of highlighting a few more points from a book. So sit tight and we'll be we'll be right back.
This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. All right, welcome back to God's Planning. I'm Father Jacob Bertrand. I'm joined by Father Bonaventure. And on today's guest splaining episode, uh, we're here with Zena. Zena Hitz, the author of her, the author of the book Lost in Thought, her new book that just came out last year. Um, so we're talking about the intellectual life. And in the top of the episode, we were talking about sort of the universal reality and universal goodness of the intellectual life, not something that's just reserved for um, an academic elite or those who just have plenty of time to sit and read dusty old books or even Dominicans and, and religious who have nothing else to do with their time, but something that's a sort of common human endeavor. So uh, now we're going to dive into that a little bit more. Uh, Father Bonaventure, take us. Sure. Zina, so um, it's staying on this this intellectual life for everyone. I'm my particular especially in my study is in the moderns. And I think as Dominicans, we tend to hate these people. Um, but what they do provide, I think, is the possibility for an egalitarian intellectualism. Because, of course, an Ar- Aristotle doesn't think that the intellectual life, as you describe it, is really possible for many people. Most people are too busy with the humdrum. But thanks to Descartes and the boys, um, modern life is provides opportunities for for reasoning and for for leisure in a way we'd never had before people can listen to this podcast for instance as opposed to just grinding out their life in poverty um although those might not be i don't know and so that means that obviously everyone's intellect or has the possibility to be intellectual but what i thought was fascinating and this is an old distinction but it meets you bring it to life again is that just because you have the opportunity to be intellectual doesn't mean that people grab onto this because there's the vice of the intellectual life, which traditionally curiositas as opposed to studiositas. And you, but you talk about it in terms of, I love this love of the spectacle and life at the surfaces, those two, which you already talked at the end of the, the first section about how this is part of a form of life, right? You live the life through the intellect and, and how you think deeply or in this case, this vicious way of thinking of the love of spectacle and and the surfaces involved in that, as opposed to it's obviously the differences there. This love of the speculative maybe and the and the um, the life of the at the deep. Could you talk a little about about those the the kind of vice and the virtue aspect of the intellectual life in this way? Sure. So um, I read a lot of Augustine when I was preparing um, the book and. Uh, which which I think of as being very close to Aquinas, but we, you could have me back sometime if we can we can argue about that if you like. Um, but Augustine has this vice called curiositas. It's, a, it's not strictly a vice; it's a weakness. Uh, it's a, a form of concupiscence. It's built into our intellectual faculty. That is, we can. Um, one of the reasons why I got interested in this because he describes it as loving knowing for its own sake. And I thought, no, no, wait, that's good. <laughs> What's going on here? But I think his examples are very helpful. Uh, so um, watching uh, violent spectacles, the gladiators in Roman times, um, spiders devouring flies, uh, really uh, sick burns on Twitter is probably the most a widespread one I know now. You just love to see people go down. And it's something that has a, a, a rubbernecking at car accidents. It's another example. It has the flavor in certain ways of contemplation because you're, you're just taking it in because it's interesting. It's not like you're using it for something else. It has no utility. 
Um, but you're also not really getting at, you're not using the intellect in its fullest, in the way it's meant to be used. You're not latching it on to an object that's taking you outside of yourself and, and that's going to teach you to grow. So one sign of this is you never stop rubbernecking at car accidents, right? You never, uh, it's not as if once you've seen one, you've learned what it's like. You want to keep looking at it. You want to keep watching the sick burns on Twitter. Um, it almost becomes addictive in a certain way. Uh, whereas when you're using your mind in a way that's wholesome, you're sinking your mental teeth into something real that uh, permits you to grow. So I call the virtue that that that, that requires, uh, the virtue of seriousness, that's my very loose translation of studiositas, mm -hmm. uh, studiousness. That is, you have to have a zeal for, for, for progress, for more, for truth, for uh, understanding, um, and that involves growth. And you know it when you when you experience. So I think the difference between these things is very much experienced. Mm -hmm. You know when you're working through a bunch of math proofs and your mind starts to latch on to the phenomena that you're thinking about, or you're really thinking about, um, say, something like uh, married couples and literature. Okay, you really start to grasp something about human beings, marriage our love for one another, our commitments to one another. Uh, so those are all things which can come out of the virtue of seriousness. That is, it's, it's, it's a zeal for wanting to get to the depths of things and, and, and a lack of satisfa dissatisfaction with uh, superficial types of experiences, which just kind of entertain us and go by without really helping us grow. I think that's yeah. that's beautiful the um, the experience aspect of it that you I mean we all want to be passionate lovers right and you can be a passionate lover of truth uh and that's what you want to to feel as a human being I think that's that's absolutely right and we think there's either passion or there's intellection and it's it no it, there's passionate love and the question is what do you love passionately No I think that's right but I I also think that and this is also a part of what what I the universality of the book that we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, everyone knows that that uh, too much time on the internet is bad for you. Like, so anyone can experience that, you know, you're on Twitter for five hours and you just feel terrible. You know, you feel like garbage because what have you been doing? Nothing. You've mm -hmm. been training all of your capacities onto stuff that is just entertaining. It just goes mm -hmm. by, it's just spectacles. It's just shadows on the wall. And, and your capacities are really meant for more than that. Uh, and even a, you know, a walk in a park where you're looking at trees and squirrels and your, your eyes and ears are trained on to, and your intellect are trained on to things that have their own substance, <laughs> then it's a, it's a totally different experience. So part of what I'm trying to do is to encourage people to recognize live out what they recognize in themselves and, and to follow that where it goes um, and to try to live more wholesome, rich lives. We all know that we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, in that kind of what you were just saying, the difference between being um, investing your yourself 
your intellect um, in something substantial rather than something superficial. And like you said, I think we recognize that from our own experience when something is just superficial, surfing the internet, surfing the Netflix menu because we don't even know what we want to watch. You know, we all have these silly examples that we, they're examples because we all experience them. And I think one of the things that, um, that, that, that we've been talking about, but haven't addressed, but I'd like to, um, is, is the, the, the sort of, you have these four points that you, in your book, uh, that you bring out from a movie that you reference in the book that, that really, I think kind of highlight, um, how it is that the intellectual life gets at the substantial in the human being rather than just the superficial. So for those who haven't read the book yet, I'll just list them real quick, but then if you want to, Zena, reflect on them, explain them to us. So Zena reflects on, on this um, this movie and she the, the intellectual life brings out these four things. One, she says that it's the form of the inner life of the person, a sort of retreat and reflection. We've been talking about this a little bit. It's also um, a withdrawal from the world and of, as Father Bonaventure was talking about, the, the business people and these sorts of things from that competition and struggle for passing things, a withdrawal from that. The third here is that, and this really stands out to me, that the intellectual life is a source of dignity, of human dignity. And then it's also a, a space for communion for us to be together because it's such a shared human activity. Um, but those four things, uh, an inner, the inner life, a withdrawal from the world, a source of dignity and a place of communion. Um, how, how do you, they all sound good. <laughs> you know, they all sound like good things. Um, and I think people would say, I want those, uh, but how is it that the intellectual life, as you understand, as you explain in your book, kind of brings those about communion and dignity and these, why these four things to kind of highlight uh, the intellectual life? Well, uh, you know, I, it's, it's something, I, I came to those four things through examples. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was thinking about, so the character in the film called The Hedgehog, which I guess is not available to stream. So more reason to, you know, keep your DVDs and CDs for the apocalypse. Okay, but um, the, so you have a figure who's fictional, but there are many real people like this, who, um, they may be from a uh, lower social class in a service sector, poor, um, humiliated by their circumstances, looked down upon, despised. So examples of working people, of prisoners, of members of marginalized groups. There are so many stories about people who uh, are, because in that case, the outside world is uh, hostile to their dignity. The only way they can find their dignity is within them. And they do that in all of these stories through books or through study or through mathematics or through looking at birds. And then they find something about themselves which is worth, uh, has a value that's well above and beyond uh, anything that their community could give them in terms of honor or status. And it also, and I think this is in a way the, the most interesting thing, that, that dignity that comes through the inwardness that comes out of stepping back either by force or by choice from games of status and competition, it, 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 it may look in a certain way like uh, isolation. So, you know, you're the bookworm in the corner reading a book uh, you're not 
talking to the other kids. That's the kind of kid I was, uh, you guys probably do. So how is that healthy? Well, the kind of uh, relationship you can form once you've found your dignity in these things, once you connect to the, what's deep rather than what's superficial, is actually just a much, much more substantive type of human relationship than the type of engagement we have when we're in these competitive environments. Zita, I just want to follow up on that for a second because it does, it, this, this intellectual life creates you as a more holistic person to then enter into relationships and the world in a way, although it's not aimed for that. Uh, that's a nice side effect. But also the communion with those you're reading. I think the, the amazing part is that if you live, if you're just reading for facts and collecting random information, you don't get to know any of the people Right. But I find in this depth reading, the intellectual life, you're you're actually talking to this dead person who's not in a sense dead, um, whether saint or not. But there's this, this there's a communion with the with the author of these great texts. So you don't just know facts about what, for instance, Kant said about the categories or about reason. But the more you spend time thinking with him, you're really thinking with him. Like you get to know him as a, as almost like an intellectual friend. I love that. So if you could just briefly, who have you gained friendship? Who, what, what friend have you gained the most or you found the most interesting? The one you like to actually, like I see books as like, I want to take a, go out to have coffee with this friend. Like who do you want to, do you find yourself going back to and being friends with uh, in this invisible community of intellectual saints? You know, that's such a great question. I haven't been asked it before. So I, because part of it is, it's a hard question because uh, I work at a great book school. And so there's a lot of them. There's a lot of books that I really love and that I've spent time with. Um, but I, I suppose I think of, there are people that have been teachers for me in a special way that have, I've gotten to know and they've modeled for me certain ways of thinking. So Plato, the philosopher, you know, I don't, I don't, or Aristotle. Um, those are people who have modeled thinking for me um, in a way that a teacher would. Mm -hmm. um, now, the person who I feel I probably the most personal connection with is Augustine. That is mm -hmm. uh, partly because of his conversational style um, and his uh, he has a kind of open-endedness and informality, especially in the confessions that, and it's, it's personal. Uh, that's a person who I feel like I know through the books. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I open up his books, I'm, I'm talking to him mm -hmm. and like any friendship, sometimes you agree, sometimes you disagree. Sometimes you think they're going off track. So it's, it's not a, it's the people who write books are real human beings. And I, I think we can forget that. <laughs> and yeah. all of the, all of the modes of relationship, respect, sympathy, um, attempt to understand, they're all valuable in dealing with authors as much as they are with living people. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've gained a lot from just that, that practice, which of course I learned from my human teachers, my living human teachers at St. John's. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess in the last couple minutes here, wrapping up, if uh, what I wanted to ask was whether or not you had a couple, two or three tips for, for someone who might listen to the podcast or pick up your book, hopefully after hearing the podcast or seeing it somewhere else that, that wanted to dive in a little bit into the intellectual life, what would you say would be um, 
kind of things to get over the intimidation of perhaps, you know, diving into something that might be more speculative than than they're used to? What would you what do you recommend even to your own students or, or something like that? Well, I, I think the most important thing, honestly, is uh, a bit of community. So um, picking up an old book is challenging. There are people that are cut, up, cut out for it. I mean, there are people who, for no utility and with no human connections, living human connections, just read tons of difficult books. But for many of us, that's a challenge. So finding a friend, a group of friends, uh, one of the online communities that sprung up, uh, around reading and, and conversation. I think those are great ways into intellectual life. Um, they're, they're, uh, because I, w- without other people, it's hard to, it's hard to be motivated and it's hard to, um, see modeled what, what kind of response might be the right one or the wrong one or the, to, to grow as an intellectual. I think you need other examples to take things from and to leave things behind. So I would really recommend connecting either with an in-person community when that's possible or an online community. Just find some other human beings who are, who are, who are willing to do this with you. Um, and it, can, it doesn't have to be books either. Uh, bird watching, I think, is a beautiful, fascinating intellectual activity. There's um, books and there's clubs, uh, astronomy also, star parties, you can go. Uh, bring your telescope somewhere and look at stuff, but you need community to do it. Uh, that's the main tip. Otherwise, I truthfully, I'm a bit resistant to recipes. So I've never, um, there's a lot of books out there that will give you, you know, three steps to uh, a magical, perfect, disciplined intellectual life where you get enough exercise and eat nutritiously. I've never seen it in myself. <laughs> so, so I, I'm I with never you. I get, agree. Yeah. I, I never give recommendations like that because every day I, I think to myself, oh, maybe maybe now I'll get my routine together. So you you have to find a, a little, um, carve out a little space, a little base of operations in your day and give yourself credit for whatever you can carve out and, and make the most of it and treasure it for what it is. It doesn't have to be anything more than what uh, it needs to be in your life. Uh, so yeah. it can be a lot, it can be a little, just, just be grateful for what you, you're able to, to carve out for yourself. That's excellent. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for, um, for joining us on, on the episode. Um, yeah, Zena Hitz, the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Father Bonaventure is doing our advertising again, holding up that book there. Uh, you can grab it on Amazon. It's a great read. It's also not a terribly long read. So it's something that's, um, that's, wholly accessible and, and really great. I actually listened to it on tape. So I, I enjoyed listening to that too. So that's an option. Um, you know, as, as Zeno was recommending doing this in a community, perhaps something to pick up with uh, a group at school or some friends at school to read through together to have some conversation there, maybe a, a sort of Lenten practice as, as Lent quickly approaches, which is kind of scary, but it's coming. Um, but, you know, find somebody, read the book together, read something together, uh, feed your mind. Uh, it allows not only your, your mind to grow, but also your heart to expand and to, to love better too. So thank you again, Zena, for, for joining us. Um, 
please feel free to share the podcast to give us a like, leave us, leave some comments, subscribe to our YouTube channel, all of the usual things. All of these things help support us. If you're interested in supporting us uh, with a little financial assistance, you can check out our Patreon page, um, donate there, stay, uh, stay tuned for some merchandise that should be coming out soon. So um, you can, you can stay plugged in with the podcast that way too. So until next time, thanks for tuning in. We are remembering you and our prayers and uh, God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.